You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of political economy in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Before joining UQ in 1999, he held positions at Griffith University, the University of New England, and the University of Tasmania. Holding a PhD from Griffith University, his latest book is titled Banking on Growth Models, China's Troubled Pursuit of Financial Reform and Economic Rebalancing. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Stephen Bell. Thanks for joining us on the show. Good morning. Hi. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Well, as you said, I'm a professor of political economy at the University of Queensland. Uh, I've done a series of uh, research projects on central banking and financial systems. Um, that's uh, a book on the Reserve Bank of Australia, another book on the People's Bank of uh, China. I've, I've written with colleagues on the uh, on the financial crisis in a, in a book called uh, Masters of the Universe, Slaves of the Market. So I've done a lot of work on financial crises and banking systems and also on Chinese political economy. Okay, um, so your latest book is titled Banking on Growth Models, China's Troubled Pursuit of Financial Reform and Economic Rebalancing. Um, and as you state in the description, it, quote, contends that China's rapid economic rise from the late 1970s to today has been built on and shaped by a highly politicized and inefficient bank-centric financial system. So to start us off, could you walk us through the thesis and give us a quick overview of the premise? Well, this is the first study um, that's, that's looked at how the Chinese political economy has evolved since the reform and opening of 1978-79. And what we do is link uh, what we call various contending growth models in China uh, with the nature of the and the changing nature of the banking and financial system, so it's the nexus between those two. And what's happened in China is that since opening and reform in the late seventies, the developmental process has featured two growth models, often in contention. Uh, one is a statist growth model, uh, basically state-owned large state enterprises (SOEs) that dominate the Chinese economy. Uh, and uh, the state-owned and state-controlled uh, banking system. Uh, and that's, that's been uh, essentially a continuation of the central planning model, but with, with very substantial relaxation. Alongside that statist growth model, uh, and, and really the, the origins of the success of the Chinese economy has been the liberation and, and growth of the market sector, first in agriculture, then from the 90s in, in the manufacturing, industrial, export sector. Uh, and that's relied very heavily on foreign direct investment, uh, uh, local investment within China and, and investment within Asia pouring into China, often from the Chinese diaspora, uh, feeding into the rapid growth of the, uh, of the market sector. Um, um, but that has been essentially either funded by foreign direct investment or retained earnings in small and medium-sized companies generally. So there's been a disconnect between the essentially the private sector and the state-controlled um, banking sector. 
So those two models have, have in a sense, been running in parallel. Uh, and the main success of the Chinese economy has come from the private market sector, uh, which is which is interesting given that it's been starved to finance uh, from the official banking sector uh, for decades. Uh, that situation changed after the financial crisis, but we'll get onto that later, I guess. So that's kind of the outlines of how the growth models dynamics and the financial system dynamics have interacted or operate in China very broadly. So as I'm sure everyone knows, China has experienced a period of tremendous economic growth over the past few decades. Um, particularly, I mean, starting off in the 1970s, but particularly taking off after the turn of the century. Um, so in the book, you spend quite a bit of time explaining the build-up to the great financial crisis, talking about the rise of banking, and discussing banking reforms prior to the crash, um, such as throughout the Asian crisis. So can you give us an overview of what banking looked like in China prior to the GFC, um, how it developed that way, and how that's different from banking, say, in Australia or the United States? Well, the the main yeah, you know, the big four banks or big five banks, uh, as I said, are state-owned and state-controlled. Um, they uh, are part of the, you know, a central part of the statist growth model. Uh, and the link between the banks there and the real economy has been basically funding um, the state-owned enterprises uh, and making credit available to local governments, which are responsible primarily for running um, Chinese infrastructure uh, spending. Uh, so, so, so the banking system has run along those lines. So it's not, it's not a Western banking system. It's not a commercially oriented banking system. It's a banking system that, that acts at the behest of the party state and is a directed finance system. Um, there have been attempts, uh, particularly in the 90s, prior to the Asian crisis and after the Asian crisis, because the Asian crisis gave the authorities in China a bit of a fright about the fragility or possible fragility of financial systems and what could happen there. So there were attempts to improve uh, lending criteria to try and uh, commercialise the banks uh, somewhat, uh, but it's it, what happened is, is a sort of a symptom of these of these competing tendencies between state statism and uh, more mar- market oriented uh, reforms and policies. So the reform of the banking system, so called, proceeded. Uh, and there were attempts, as I said, make you know, lending a bit more commercial to streamline the operations, to introduce more regulation, etc. But that was always within the confines of essentially maintaining a statist banking system. So there were there were clear limits to the reform process um, um, up to the GFC in particular, um, and that's basically uh, the way the system ran, broadly speaking. Now that's, as I said, quite separate in many ways from the market sector uh, and the financing of the market sector. So the main uh, uh, state banks uh, were reluctant to lend to private enterprises. Uh, There was less information on their balance sheets and performance. Um, The banks had a strong incentive to lend to the SOEs, in particular of local governments. Um, But as I said, this is not a normal banking system. So uh, the SOEs were running on... um, Soft budgets wasn't it wasn't uh, entirely necessary for the SOEs to pay the money back to the main banks, and the banking system uh, periodically uh, went through periods of of uh, um, essentially crises where um, large and large larger and larger volumes of non-performing loans were piling up on bank balance sheets. So what would happen is that. Uh, uh, 
the state essentially would step in and recapitalize the banks, cleanse the balance sheets, um, set up bad banks, asset management companies, take off the um, poor performing loans off the balance sheets and cleanse the balance sheets. And the whole process can start again. And that's, that's a process of moving money around the state system, essentially. Uh, and that's how the system worked very, very broadly. Okay, um, great. So um, next I wanted to ask about the impact of the great financial crisis in China, especially as it relates to the rise of shadow banking. So can you tell us a bit about this idea and how the great financial crisis, um, the, the impact it had? Yes, okay, that's, that's a pretty long story, that one. The uh, GFC uh, had a major impact on China, even though the Chinese banks, the main Chinese banks and institutions weren't uh, exposed and involved in asset-backed securities trading, highly leveraged securities trading, and the whole uh, sort of saga of what happened to the banks in Wall Street, London, and, and Europe, et cetera. So they, you know, they stood clear of that. Basically, because in many ways, they were just fairly um, basic banking organisations and securitisation and the high-rolling finance of the West was not part of their, part of their experience at all. Um, but the GFC had a major impact on the Chinese economies. Uh, the world economy slumped. Chinese exports slumped. Um, the Chinese authorities have, have um, a very strong commitment to maintaining high rates of economic growth. Uh, so the, the authorities uh, and the, the party leadership decided on a massive stimulus program. Uh, fiscal limitations uh, essentially made that a debt-funded uh, stimulus program. Uh, so the banks were told to lend. Um, the uh, local governments were told to draw up plans for borrowing and, and infrastructure investment in particular. Uh, so there was, there was an, uh, an investment surge, a credit-backed investment surge. So, so serious were the authorities about this process that um, they allowed the growth of shadow banking, uh, which is shadow banking is essentially banking activity through non-formal or informal institutions and banking channels. Um, and the authorities, for the first time, allowed the growth of the shadow banking sector. And there's always a tendency for shadow banking sectors to grow if the main banks are constrained or regulated. This is, this is back alley banking and, and a freer banking environment. But the authorities are what has always repressed the shadow banking system in favour, not surprisingly, of the main state-owned and state-controlled financial and banking system. Uh, in the wake of the GSC, those, those uh, controls uh, were relaxed and shadow banking was allowed to grow. And not surprisingly, given that it was providing access to more flexible forms of credit, uh, cheaper forms of credit, to the business, the private business sector in particular, but also to the household sector, uh, it took off like a bomb. So there was rapid growth of the shadow banking sector. Now, the, sh the growth of the shadow banking sector was not divorced from the main banking system because not you know, soon into this process, the main banks realised that they were being <coughs> sorry, outcompeted in many ways by the capacity of shadow banks to offer better terms and conditions on, on credit. And the main banks essentially joined in the process and used off-balance sheet banking, i.e. the shadow banking system as part of their operations. So the main banks and the shadow banks became joined at the hip um, uh, through this process of rapid shadow banking expansion. Now, we argue, well, we could have argued in the book, if the book had been published in 2015, this would have been the argument. 
the argument would have been that the growth of the shadow banking system was a runaway train. It was extremely popular amongst households and small businesses. Uh, for a change, the market sector was getting adequate finance and not scratching around with retained earnings or you know, other forms of informal financing. Uh, so the, the private sector financing uh, started working fairly well. Uh, households got access to more credit. Uh, that could have increased domestic consumption. It tended not to because most of the debt from the household sector was then thrown into the mortgage market and the booming property sector. But that offered better returns than the, uh, the, the former financial repression regime that had operated uh, for decades where the main banks uh, basically were hoovering up vast sums of savings, very high rates of savings for Chinese households, paying very low rates of deposit and uh, getting quite fat margins and they were highly profitable. So that, that was a system of financial repression, basically providing very poor returns to savers uh, but hoovering up vast amounts of capital uh, for the use of the state and, uh, and its state-owned enterprises and infrastructure spending in particular. So the growth of shadow banking offered a way out of the previous system of financial repression and, and offered um, you know, bold new vistas, <laughs> et cetera, for, um, for participants in the financial system. So that took off like a bomb. Now, the authorities, after a couple of years, in the wake of the GFC, could have started clamping down on the shadow banking system, a sector that chose not to. Uh, and our argument prior to 2015, roughly, would have been that this is a one-way trade, it's very popular, the genie's been let out of the bottle, it's going to be very hard to, uh, in a sense, uh, restrain uh, the new financial system because it was highly successful in many ways. It was certainly adding very high, highly to growing debt levels, uh, but the Chinese authorities seemed sanguine on that front and seemed quite keen to finance growth in various sorts of channels in various sorts of new ways. Um, so that was, the, that was the kind of point that we reached um, in writing the book because we wrote the book over quite a number of years off and on, and that could have been an argument. So in a sense, the argument would have been that the market sector uh, and Nicholas Lardy, the, the well-known American economist, wrote a book in 2013, I think, I forget the date, called Markets Over Mao, which was essentially the same sort of argument, that the market system is, is, a, is a runaway train. It's very hard to stop now, given its, given its power and success. Uh, it's outperforming the state sector, and the authorities are kind of almost of necessity standing back and letting it happen because of their growth imperative. Uh, and, and that's the way the system looked to us at that point in time. Now, if you'd like to ask another question about what happened after that period, I can, I can answer that if you like, or we can go back to another question. Um, yeah, that, that, is, that is interesting. And a couple of things I was wondering as you were talking. Um, so with the rise of shadow banking, I mean, one would assume that they would be less successful than um, state-owned enterprises, given, you know, um, shadow banking, that, that sector is not, um, you know, state-owned, so it needs to turn a profit. It's bound by market forces. It can't run a loss for you know, years on end and, and still continue. Um, whereas the state-owned enterprises, the big banks um, being backed by the state, um, you know, they they don't have any sort of profit. You know, profit doesn't come first. Um, they they can operate at a loss. Um, but then again, at the same time, they're bound by the whims of the state and the political um, priority. So um, in terms of the, these, these competing sectors, can you tell us a bit more about, you know, how um, they sort of affect one another and how the, the different um, dynamics that are um, going on in each sector sort of impact their, their efficacy and their success. 
Okay, well, as, as I said before, that in, after a couple of years, the, the main state banks started to join in with the shadow sector, mainly because they were being outcompeted, they were losing, uh, they were losing market share. Uh, and they are, they are to, somewhat, to some extent, they're not, they're not completely kind of Soviet model banks in the sense that they do espouse some commercial criteria, they do run balance sheets and have profits, et cetera. So, so in that sense, to some extent, that they're operating in a market to some extent. So given the runaway success of shadow banks, they essentially started incorporating shadow banking activities into their own balance sheet activities. Uh, so the two sectors became joined in that sense, uh, which uh, gave more legitimacy as well to the shadow banking sector. Now, this is up to around 2015. Uh, so that, so they, in a sense... Shadow banking is banking in the shadow of the main banks who were heavily involved in the end with the, with the system itself. Okay, so and... They weren't, and they weren't competing in the end. Well, there was a degree of competition initially, but in the end they were cooperating heavily because the main banks were under threat from the runaway success of the, um, the shadow banking sector. Okay, um, and I think... Um as, as people might have expected, um, I'm, I'm not sure um, if they did that you'd see sort of a state um, crackdown on um, the the shadow banking um, sector, because obviously when they start to take off um, for that time when they were competing with the, the state-owned banks, you'd, you'd think that that would pose sort of a threat to state control, um, their their ability to, to control the, the sector. So um, instead of cracking down, they sort of, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Was that the attitude? No, not really. It was a bit more complicated than that because within the state uh, system in China, which is the party and the party leadership, uh, you know, since opening and reform, uh, you've had competing camps, um, so-called liberals, who are, you know, still Chinese communists and statists to a fair extent, but believe, uh, you know, in the strength of markets. And that dominated economic reform right up to the inauguration of Xi Jinping. Um, more or less, uh, and the success of the Chinese economy was, was testament to the, to the liberal reforms and opening and marketisation, et cetera, that had been going on. The opposing camp were uh, called conservatives, who, who were much more statist, who were more sceptical of markets, uh, worry about Western influence, uh, and, and basically ask the question, where's, where's this going to end, you know? Um, so... The initial period after the GFC was one in which uh, the Liberals, and this is in particular key institutions would be the People's Bank of China and the China Banking Regulatory Authority um, as, as key institutional kind of bastions of liberal reform, but also a number of, a number of the leadership groups, were interested in, in the growth of shadow banking, the growth of credit to the household and, and private sector, as part of their vision of the reform of the Chinese growth model further away from statism, given the failures of, of you know, the gross inefficiencies of lending to more, essentially moribund, mostly moribund state-owned state enterprises, despite attempts to reform the state-owned enterprises over decades, particularly from the 90s. So the Liberals, who were basically historically dominant in economic policy, so shadow banking is a, is a further aid to economic reform and in the jargon economic rebalancing, which is China's problem. China's problem is that it needs to be economically re rebalanced 
shift the weight of the centre of gravity of the economy further away from um, inefficient state-owned enterprises uh, and increasingly inefficient infrastructure investment, which has been the key drivers of the state status growth model, more towards um, uh, further energising the private sector and further increasing household consumption levels. So that's the rebalancing agenda. And the shadow banking sector, uh, you know, in, in cahoots with the, with the state bank, was seen as a useful route to help rebalance the Chinese economy. So there was, <clears throat> there was um, support, pretty strong support, for the continued growth of shadow banking, the liberation or further liberation and marketisation of the financial system and banking system to aid credit flows uh, to key sectors of the economy that had been starved of credit previously. Uh, that arguably needed a further boost, particularly the private sector and the household sector, and particularly the household sector in terms of household consumption and, uh, and boosting aggregate demand. So, you know, c- consumption as a share of GDP is quite low in China. In fact, as a share of GDP, it had declined from the 90s, you know, down to about the low point, about 35% of GDP. It's crept up a bit, a little bit since then, but it's still low and, and Western market-driven economies have much higher levels of household consumption as a driver of GDP, you know, somewhere in the 60% range. So one of the arguments about, about Chinese economic reform from the Liberals, at least, was we, we need to engage with this process as part of a rebalancing agenda, um, you know, to rebalance away from statism to some extent uh, and to further what's obviously uh, the, winning, the winning growth model, which is the um, more market-oriented um, Private sector, marketisation, boosting household consumption, reducing household inequality, lessening the impact of financial repression, et cetera. So that, that, that were the kind of contending political strategies and, and, uh, and coalitions within the, within the party that were, um, that were operating after the GFC. Now, that, that dynamic stops around 2015, we argue. Okay. Um, so uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about the impact of some of the issues that China is facing, um, starting with what is arguably the most inflated real estate market in the world, world driven by wild speculation. Um, mm-hmm. Many have called China's real estate uh, market a ticking time bomb, and China already appears to be in the thick of some kind of um, housing crisis with prices dipping, or, or sorry, um, sales dipping sharply. So can you tell us a bit about what this could mean for the future of Chinese growth in the financial sector? Well, that's that's uh, the current property boom is 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 a, a facet of basically liberalising the credit system um, through either shadow banks or the main bank. Uh, so, so the growth of uh, credit into that sector's uh, ballooned prices, and the whole thing's turned into what what could well be a bubble. Um, that's part of uh, almost any growth status or market. It's obviously driven primarily by market forces. Uh, but it's it's a growth engine. Uh, governments typically like property boom because they're uh, you know they're building booms, construction booms, prices go up, people with property like it, etc. So it's a standard kind of property boom story, which which the authorities um, haven't done enough, obviously, to deal with and repress uh, and cope with. So that's one that's one aspect of uh, the post GFC story. So it's the growth and spread of credit across the economy away from primarily beforehand the state sector through the state banks and the SOEs and infrastructure at local government level to a broader class of credit growth and, and in particular uh, the, the property sector. That's one story, but there's other dimensions to what's happened. 
Okay. Um, so next, I wanted to talk about the the possibility of financial and economic reform in China. Um, so you write that quote since around 2015, Xi Jinping's regime has reversed this trajectory and placed China's financial system under heavy state control, resulting in slowed economic development and skyrocketing national debt. China's market transition and economic rebalancing are now in doubt as is the fate of the nation's economy. So I think you touched on that a little bit in some of your previous answers, talking about how China was sort of on the right trajectory with liberalization um, after the Great Financial Crisis until President um, Xi Jinping's inauguration, and that's when things sort of took a turn. So can you tell us a bit more about these moves by President Xi? What his motivations might be, and what ramifications you believe this reversal will have? Sure. So when when、uh, Xi took over the leadership. Uh, late 2012, three thirteen. There were comments,、uh, comments about. Yes, we believe in market forces. Yes, markets will be a major source of you know investment and and、um, investment you know、um, management etc.、Uh, but at the same time, the state will play a central role in resource allocation. So there were two stories running almost in contradiction, and that was that was Xi talking to two different audiences: the liberals and the conservatives. What's happened, and it wasn't clear which way Xi was going to go. But the history of Chinese leadership since opening reform has been essentially liberal,、uh, and liberalisation, and opening, and marketisation, etc.、Uh, it, it turns out that Xi is the first conservative leader、uh, China's had since the seventies, in the sense that the conservatives now under Xi are on top of the policy-making process. And this this caught us by surprise when writing the book because we expected, as I said before, that, that the market reforms were a bit of a runaway train, and would be hard to kind of rail in or rein in.、Uh, that's not the case. So China's、uh, one step is that China's been one country that has actually heavily dealt with the shadow banking sector, where a lot of other countries have seen the shadow banking sector ban since the GFC. It's a way of escaping regulation, the heavier regulation after the GFC that was introduced in a number of countries. But the other, the other kind of more fundamental thing in China is that the conservatives gained ammunition in their arguments against marketisation and, and the greater freedoms in the economy.、Uh, the GFC obviously was one major、uh, incident where the conservatives basically said, "Well, see what happens in Western financial markets when you liberalise finance. This is very dangerous."、Um, you know, Wall Street. You know, this is not just another third world country. Going down, it's it's a major finance financial center in the West.、Uh, this is very dangerous, and we need to be very cautious.、Uh, then there was the interbank crisis in two thousand and thirteen. Then there was the stock market crisis in two thousand and fifteen, sixteen. This has all fueled the conservative arguments. They're essentially saying, "We told you so. Markets are a worry. We need to be very careful with this, and we need to, in a sense, stick with with our knitting, which is the status growth model, and be very cautious about further liberalisation." Uh, so one result of that has been to clamp down on the growth of the shadow banking sector. <clears throat>、uh, the other result, which is possibly more fundamental, is a redirection of credit away from the market back towards the state-owned enterprises. This is the status agenda coming to the fore again, very strongly.、Uh, the widespread disillusionment of, of businesses and, and、uh, Chinese capitalists with, with the current regime and the flavour of it. A slowdown in private sector investment in many ways. So, in, in a sense, China's doubling down on the status growth model after experimenting for decades with a much more successful growth model based on private sector initiative.
markets, etc., opening globalization and the rest. Um, now, the Chinese leadership uh, is ideologically status at, at the current moment. There's lots of there's lots of murmurings and, and discussion from liberals saying this is this is dangerous and we need we need to be you know worried about this trend. Um, Nicholas Lardy, after writing about the power of markets, subsequently published a book called The State Strikes Back, which is kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, and this has been a fundamental shift in the Chinese trajectory and, and the weighting of the various growth models. So we're back to heavy, heavy statism and much more scepticism about markets and so forth. So, you know, there's been attempts to rein in the property sector. There's been attempts to rein in the high-tech companies. Any capitalist that looks too big for their boots is often disciplined. Um, the private sector is is uh, cowering. Uh, foreign investors investors are much more worried about where China's going and investment levels into China. None of that's helped by the you know conflicts and so forth between the US and China currently. Uh, so there's been a major re- reorientation. Uh, so our original thesis that the market sectors a runaway trade and you know it's going to be very hard to stop this. This is this is helping rebalancing. It's very popular with you know millions of Chinese households, etc. Uh, it's it's the, the power of the Chinese state has been reasserted in this sense, um, somewhat surprisingly, given that the view is uh, from liberals that this is killing the goose that laid the golden egg. This is the private sector market strategy. Uh, the statists seem to believe that they can run the economy successfully by rejuvenating the SOEs and and try to reform them. Um, there's no evidence that that's possible. There's been a, a whole lot of attempts in recent decades under liberal reformers to, to you know, beef up and, and make the US SOE sector more uh, competitive and stronger um, to get global champions, etc. The problem, so this is a belief that it can work from the state. Objectively, the problem with that strategy, one of the problems is that the, the state-owned enterprises and local government activity is, is highly politicised often highly corrupt. These sectors are the plaything of the party elites. Uh, it's where they get their, essentially, their financial resources. They have control over uh, uh, recruitment of, of senior managers across the entire economy through the system. It, it's a huge source of power and patronage uh, that's almost inevitably corrupted. Uh, so trying to get an efficient uh, in uh, industrial economics, you know, activity out of that sort of politicised system, it's con- it's essentially contradictory. We think it's going to be either very very hard or virtually impossible to revamp and make these sectors highly competitive, uh, and that's the problem. So we think they're backing the wrong horse. They they don't think they are. They think they can introduce industrial policies and various reforms to make these sectors work, and we've got G's anti-corruption campaign, et cetera. So there's, there's some progress in those areas, but um, a slightly more cynical view of G's corruption campaign is to weed out and remove opponents, uh, and he's got plenty of those. So that's kind of our reading of what's happening at the moment. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Bell. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review, and as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.